Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our God and Savior, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we come before your holy throne this morning to once again acknowledge your name as holy, to acknowledge you for who you are and what you have done for us, your people, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is blessed forever. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for showing us your truth in Him, showing us the way and giving us the life in Him. Thank you for bringing Him here that He may die for us, a death that we could not die, and give us a life and a resurrection that we could not resurrect by ourselves, and a righteousness that we could not attain by our own efforts, and such a hope that could not be purchased by our own money, our own obedience, our own anything. Lord, I pray for your people, those who call the name of Christ, wherever Christ is named, that you may sanctify them by your truth, draw them, bring them to yourself. I pray for these who are gathered here this morning. Lord, may you remind them of who they are, their true identity, and the hope that they have because of Christ. Lord, keep your people. May you keep them from stumbling because they are prone to stumble. They are prone to get on the broad way, draw them and keep them on the narrow way that they may find life. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon us this morning. May you speak to us through the teaching of your word. May your Holy Spirit reveal Christ to us, show us Christ in his word, that we may know him and love him. We pray for your blessing in all things, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our teaching is going to be from the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, chapter 27. And this has to be the pattern of anyone who comes and claims to preach, teach the gospel. They have to read from the Bible. <laughs> they have to teach you things from the Bible. And show you understanding, give you understanding of what God is teaching. Matthew 27 verses 1 to 10, Matthew records for us and says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, so that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason that field has been called the field of blood to this day. 
Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. That's the word of the Lord. And for our title, The Field of Blood. I don't have a second title. The Field of Blood. Jesus is about to go on the cross. The Passover feast is coming. The Passover feast, the annual Jewish feast that God instituted for the children of Israel when he delivered them from Egypt. That Passover that the Jews were supposed to commemorate annually is coming and Jesus has to die. And Jesus has to die on the Passover day as the Passover lamb. The Passover feast was fulfilled in Christ Jesus because he was the lamb of God who was slain for our sins. And so he had to die on Passover day. And because he has to die, he has to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be put to death exactly at the hour that the Passover lamb was killed in the history of Israel. So his hour of glorification, the hour of the cross, the time of going to the cross was appointed by God the Father before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, the hour that Jesus was supposed to be on the cross was already in the books. So he has to go according to what has been written for and of him, but war is the man by whom he goes. The hour that God appointed for Jesus to go on the cross is the hour that God also put your name to be redeemed by the work of Christ on the cross. God already knew everything about you. So Jesus was not going on the cross to die for a people that did not exist. He died for people who already existed in his mind. He knew all of them by name because he wrote their names before the foundation of the world. And so your name that you have right now, you did not get from your parents. You've never thought about this. The name that you have right now, you did not get from your parents because if you belong to Christ, Christ existed before your parents existed. And the Bible says the names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So if you are going to show up to heaven, your name has to match with what is in the book. And if the book was written before anything was created, guess what? It's God who gave you the name. So in time, our parents just give us the names that God has already given us. Okay? So Jesus is approaching the hour of his glorification, the hour of his death. So he agonizes like a woman who is in labor because the time for him to deliver 
the children that are in his loins has come. He is like a pregnant woman. And as a pregnant woman, he has to go through labor pains because he has to deliver to God children who belong to God who look like him. So he mourns and he groans with loud cries and with tears to him who was able to save him from death. He sweats blood. He prays and continues to pray as he anticipates the time that he is going to be on the cross paying for your sin and mine. He knows exactly what is happening. Jesus was not afraid of the Jews. He was not afraid of the Romans. Jesus was not afraid of lions or snakes. Jesus, as the Son of God, was only afraid of one person. He was afraid of God himself. And if the Son of God is afraid of God, men who are sinners are not afraid of God. They're not afraid of God. Why? Because they don't know who God is. Jesus knows who God is. And so he is in agony because he has to take the punishment on himself of your sins and mine. And in Isaiah, Isaiah says, And his visage, his face was mad more than of any man, which means Jesus, when he received the judgment of our sin on the cross, his face was so deformed beyond recognition. And that is why when he was on the cross, there was darkness on the land for three hours because God would not have people to see his son. The darkness that came during the day to cover the face of Jesus because of what God had done to him. And Isaiah would say, it pleased God to crush him. And Jesus says, in Matthew 26, 39, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. If it's possible, if it is possible, and if it was possible for the cup to be removed from Christ, then you and I would have no hope of salvation. So praise God that it was impossible for the cup to be removed from Christ. Impossible. And Luke 22, 44, Jesus would say, And being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. His sweat was so thick, he was sweating blood before anybody ever laid their hands on him. That's the agony of the pain that Jesus had. As a woman who is in labor, the contractions are getting closer and closer and stronger and stronger. We just had our last born son three months ago. When I was at the hospital with my wife, I was there looking at the screen. And you see the contractions getting closer. And then they get even higher and higher and closer. Then it's time to call the nurse and say... The baby is coming. <laughs> the baby is coming. And so, because Jesus is about to give birth, God is moving heaven and earth that his son may be raised up on the tree of shame. Jesus has to die because he came to die. 
He is the Lamb of God that, that takes away the sin of the world. And the Lamb was not for petting. <laughs> they did not have a, a petting zoo in Israel. And Lamb was there to be killed. So a lamb did not take away sin by being petted in a pet zoo. It only covered sin by being killed. And so Christ shows up as the lamb that takes away sin. He knows right from the beginning that he came to die. So he knew that he had to be raised up on the cross and taken as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb to the slaughter, that he may save his people from their sin. But Jesus has to be betrayed. Jesus has to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And his betrayer came in the person of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, he said, Judas Iscariot is the one who is going to betray my son. And I'm going to preserve the family of Judas Iscariot right from Genesis all the way to the cross. I am going to preserve them. I am going to make sure that they never die as to perish because I need one from their line to betray my son. That's the God of the Bible. And Jesus has to be betrayed by Judas. But not only that, for Jesus to be betrayed, sin has to be in existence. Because Jesus is not going to die on the cross for nothing. He goes on the cross to remove sin. He is not dying to show people how tough he was. He was dying to remove sin. And so God made sure that sin would be in existence. And (laughs) the devil is also part of the program. The devil is part of the program of getting Christ on the cross. So God made sure the devil existed. Every job requires the right tools to be done properly. And so if Christ has to be put on the cross, God has to have the right tools for his son to be put on the cross. And so God provides the tools for Jesus to be put on the cross. And praise God that he did not appoint for you to be Judas. God was pleased to save you and not use you as a tool to the betrayal of his son. Because if he did, that's exactly what he'd have done. So Judas could not help but betray Jesus. It had to happen because Judas was in the hands of a very sovereign and mighty God. And Jesus, even as he is looking to go on the cross He is showing that he is in control of the whole process. He is giving instructions to both Judas and the devil to say, keep us on schedule. Let's move this thing and get it done. John 13, let's go there. John 13, 21 to 30. John 13, verses 21 to 30. John records and says, when Jesus, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom 
one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And that's John. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do it quickly. That's the command to the devil. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him, for some were supposing because Judas had had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So the devil is right in there. He knows that he has work to do. God is working all these things. The devil is not somewhere in Africa at this point, And he is not somewhere in Russia at this point. He is exactly where Jesus is. Jesus had prayed and said, Simon, Simon, the devil asked me. He inquired if... He could get you to sift you like wheat. I had a conversation with the devil and he was wondering if you are the one that he's supposed to get. So the devil comes to Jesus and they have a conversation. And Jesus says, well, I prayed for you that your faith will fail not. Jesus did not say, I am removing the temptation. Jesus did not say, I am telling the devil not to touch you. Jesus said, no, I'm going to leave the devil to come and sift you, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail in spite of the temptation. So the difference between Judas and Simon Peter, because you see, Simon Peter also denied Jesus. But Simon Peter was saved. Why? The difference is not in Simon Peter or Judas. The difference is that Simon Peter had been prayed for by Jesus. So the only way that you're going to hold to the end is because Jesus already prayed for you. You have to understand that. That's your only hope. You can't hope to continue in this life, in this work of salvation, unless Christ already prayed for you. And he did. That your faith will not fail in spite of the circumstances that you are dealing with. So Simon Peter had a high priest who prayed for him. Judas did not have a high priest who prayed for him. That's the difference. The difference is Jesus. So I was saying, Jesus identifies Judas and says, the one to whom I give this morsel is the one who's going to betray me. And as soon as as soon as Judas gets it, and Judas did not say, oh, I'm good right now. I just had lunch. He had to eat it. And immediately the devil entered him. And immediately Judas leaves to go and betray Jesus to the chief priest. This has to go on schedule. Whatever you have to do, you guys, come on. Let's keep the time. That's how much in control Jesus 
ease of his own death. Because he said, no man takes my life away from me. I give it up by my own accord, by my own will. But here this, Matthew 26 again. The chief priests and the elders of Israel, those who were opposed to Jesus and were plotting on how they may secretly apprehend him as to kill him, they were looking for an opportunity. As soon as Jesus shows up on the scene, he's already causing problems. As soon as Jesus opens up his mouth, he's always causing trouble. And so they were looking for a long time for an opportunity to kill him. And so they found a willing partner, an insider in the person of Judas Iscariot. So Judas Iscariot was a lover of money. And the chief priests had money because they collected all the offerings. So they had money to give to Judas so as to betray Jesus. But something interesting had just happened before Judas had gone out to betray Jesus. A certain woman had anointed Jesus with some very costly perfume. And Judas was there watching and he was not happy about it. Because he's thinking, well, this perfume is very expensive and I don't think it should be used on Jesus Rather, we should sell it and put the money in the money bag that Judas was over because he was the treasurer of the group. So Judas is saying, well, we should have sold this, get the money so that I can steal it. <laughs> okay? Matthew 26, 6 to 12. Matthew 26, 6 to 12. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial or flask of very costly perfume and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman for she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. So this woman, whom I believe to be Mary, the sister of Lazarus, she had this bottle. Listen, this, this is crazy. Mary was a worker of the night. Understand that. She was the work of the night. And from her process, she bought expensive perfume for herself. And God says, Mary, this is what you don't know. From your tread, all that perfume was for anointing my son. Can you believe God doing that? To use a woman like her and the process from her business of the night to bring that Expensive perfume to anoint Jesus. That's sovereignty. That's being in control. That is amazing control. And of course, Judas, one of the Gospels, I don't remember which one, they tell us exactly who it is who was complaining about 
the oil, the, the perfume being used on Jesus. And he says it's Judas who was complaining. So the disciple who was indignant was Judas. And he was so unhappy about this waste, as he called it, because he wanted to make his money from that. He knew that the chief priests and the elders hated Jesus. And so he plotted to get the money that he did not get from the perfume. And he went to them and got his money from the chief priests. So Judas was so determined to get his money even at the expense of betraying Jesus. He loves the money. So Judas thinks, I'm going to make a bargain on this thing and I am going to betray Jesus. A bargain for the blood of Jesus. Matthew 26, 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? What are you willing to give? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. So Judas now has been paid. His pockets are full of change. <laughs> and so he has to deliver the goods to the chief priest. So now he's looking for an opportunity to betray the Lord. But while all this was happening, this is almost like a vantage point. You have a lot of things happening. You have Judas going to the chief priest. You have this woman anointing Jesus. But also you have Jesus saying, I am establishing the new covenant in my blood. So there are a lot of things that are coming together to make sure Christ is put on the cross. And none of those can fail because the scriptures have to be fulfilled. And God is moving every inch. If this is delayed by one second, everything gets messed up. So God is moving every single person to one point to Jesus. Matthew 26, 26 and 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken up a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus establishes the new covenant and he says, this is what is happening, guys. I am about to be put on the cross because I have to establish a new covenant for the salvation of my people for the forgiveness, for the remission, for the cancellation of the sins of my people. And so immediately after this, Jesus enters into the garden of Gethsemane. And so he agonizes and he prays there at night and they came to get him. Judas came with the entourage from the chief priests and the rulers to come and get Jesus. Matthew 26 47 to 50. Matthew 26, 47 to 50. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd 
with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. And that was another command. Do what you guys have come to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So Judas had accomplished his work. Judas had accomplished the work for which God had raised him. And Judas could not repent. Judas had no option but to betray Jesus. And Judas had to betray Jesus so that you and I may have life. Judas is the instrument in God's hands to betray the Lord. All those who came with Judas were in the hands of the Lord to seize him. So they seized him and took Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest. That Jesus may be questioned. Because if Jesus has to go on the cross, he has to be charged. He can't just be put on the cross. He had to go through a court process. Jesus has to be charged with something. So he cannot just be apprehended and be put on the cross. They have to do some legal proceedings. And so they took him to the high priest that he may be questioned and charged. Matthew 26 59 to 66. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now had the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. So according to the law, if anyone would come and profess to be God, they were lying and they were supposed to be put to death. That's blasphemy. If you blasphemed, you were supposed to die. Remember what happens to Stephen. They stoned him to death because of blasphemy again. So all that was introduction. We haven't even talked about the field of blood. But it's necessary information to understand why the field of blood is very important. So we go to Matthew 27 verse 1. We are only working with 10 verses, so... Should be able to get there sometime before my flight leaves. (laughs) Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus 
to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. So the first trial, remember Jesus has been apprehended at night and brought to the chief priest. And the first trial of Jesus happened overnight with Caiaphas the high priest. And under the Jewish law, it was illegal to have such a trial at night. They had the trial of Jesus at night. It was an illegal trial, but they already determined that they were going to put Jesus to death. The verdict had already been pronounced because of the charge of blasphemy. So they reconvened in the morning to legitimize their gathering, to legitimize their court system and say, okay, let's just meet this morning to do the paperwork. (laughs) We are just signing the paperwork of what we already agreed to do last night. So they reconvened in the morning and they reaffirmed their judgment of death on Christ. So they were determined to put him to death. But they did not have power at this time of the history of the Jews to put a man to death since they were under the Roman rule. The Jews were under Roman rule and so the Romans were the government over the Jews. So the power of the sword was with the Romans and not with the Jews. And that is the reason why they ushered Jesus over to Pilate, who was the governor, the Roman governor over the area. So they want Pilate in. Misery loves company. John 18, John 18, verse 31. John 18, verse 31. So Pilate said to them, so Jesus is already at Pilate. And it so happened by God's sovereignty that Pilate was in Jerusalem also at this time. And God was so lucky to have Pilate in Jerusalem. It's God who brought Pilate to Jerusalem because Pilate is part of the program. He doesn't know it. Okay. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. So the Jews cannot put anyone to death, so they seek to draw in Pilate because Pilate is the governor of Judea and Samaria has the power of the sword. And so they delivered him to Pilate. Let's go back to Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, but they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. Judas did not think that Jesus would actually be condemned. Judas has seen Jesus perform miracles. Judas has seen the Jews. Remember one time, the Jews took Jesus to a cliff so as to push him over the cliff. Right on the edge of the cliff, And Jesus turns right round and he walks past them and none lays their hand on him. And he's saying, you have no power over me. You can't push me over. I'm not going to die by being pushed over. You can't stone me even. This is how it's going to go. You're going to raise me up on the cross. I'm going to cause you. I'm going to make sure that you raise me up. 
and I'm going to make you so mad and angry at me that you have no option but to want to crucify me. That's what, exactly what is happening. Like in the book of John, I'm teaching the book of John. As you continue to go through the book of John, the anger towards Jesus is just rising exponentially. And it's God who is ramping it up to the cross because the Son of Man has to be crucified. So Judas did not think that Jesus was going to actually be killed. He did not think that. He thought Jesus was going to pull some other trick like he has always been doing. That he would get his money and Jesus would be free and everything is good. That's what he was thinking. But then Jesus, uh, sorry, but then he realized that the Lord has now been condemned and he started to feel remorse. And the money that he had in his hands was causing some serious conviction. The conviction was so bad that he, because he could not repent, he only had one option for himself. He tried to remove that conviction by death. And so he went and killed himself. But before he went there, he thought maybe, let me go back and return the money. Let me return the money first that may cleanse my conscience and that was not enough he needed more than returning the money bag to get Jesus back but in this Judas also made a confession of who Christ is he made a confession of the sinlessness of Christ remember God is preaching the gospel in this drama he is presenting the gospel in Romans in a dramatic fashion So he confesses that Jesus is sinless. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he says. So Christ was not worthy of death because of anything that he did himself. He was sinless. He was holy. He was innocent. He was separate from sinners. But he had to go this way, the way appointed for him by the Father. But the religious Leaders were unsympathetic to Judas. And that's usually what happens when you get yourself into crime. (laughs) And then things don't work out very well. The people that you plotted to do crime with, they all start to, uh, no, you, you, you see it to yourself. (laughs) They don't want anything to do with it. So the religious leaders say, okay, Judas, you deal with the money. We have nothing to do with the money. You see to it. We can't take the money back. And so what did Judas do? Verse 5 of Matthew 27. So Judas threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. So that is the offering place where they came and put their offering. So he goes there into the temple and he puts that money back and departed. And he went away. And hanged himself. The text says he hanged himself. But Peter tells us in Acts chapter 1. That what actually happened with Judas. Acts chapter 1 verse 15 to 20. Acts chapter 1 15 to 20. Apostle Peter is preaching. And he says at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, 
which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So Peter gives us the inside scoop of how actually Judas died. He went on the edge of a cliff of some sort and threw himself over and killed himself. Because his intestines gushed out. And this was for the fulfillment of scripture. Wow. But hear this. Verse 6 of 27, Matthew 27. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple's treasury since it is the price of blood. The chief priests, who were supposed to be the guardians of the law and the temple, realized they had a much more difficult and complicated situation in their own hands. So the money problem did not just affect Judas, it affected, it boomeranged back to them. It was easy to give out the money as payment to Judas, but now they have to get rid of it. For it smelled of innocent blood. It can't be put into the temple treasury where gifts to God were put. It could not be put together with the things that were sacred. Okay? And so what are we to do with this money? What do we do with the money? Verse 7 and 8. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So they conferred together, they get together, and they agreed that they should buy not a condo, not a house on the beach, not to start a business, not to go to the shopping mall, not to buy some new clothes, but to buy the potter's field. Now it's starting to get interesting. (laughs) The field was known and owned by some person, the porter. So everyone in Jerusalem knows the guy. He is known as the porter and he owns the land. He owns the field. He has rise to it. And in this field, it was a field of clay for making pottery. All kinds of vessels. So the field would have like a kiln for the pottery. And also it would have a lot of broken pots. The field would have a lot of broken pots. You might remember that. It was a field used to make fragile earthen vessels. And so the religious authorities approached the porter who owned this piece of land and said, here is 30 pieces of silver. We want this land. By the way, we are not going to tell you the whole story. We are trying to cover up something. But you take the money. You take the money. 
And surprisingly, the porter did not make an objection to selling the land. Why? Because God is sovereign over it. He did not object to selling the land and he did not object to the price. He did not say, oh, by the way, no, this is a family plot. This has been handed to us from generation to generation. We can't sell it. He did not say, right now, business is so good. It's booming. There's no way. <laughs> My business is so good. There's no way that I'm going to accept 10 pieces of silver. But if I have to, maybe give me 1,000 pieces of silver. That's a good deal. The 30 pieces of silver that were offered by the religious authorities were just enough to buy the piece. And it was agreeable to the porter. So the religious authorities are like the equivalent of the city authorities. Because it is the city that deals with the allocation of land and how the land is going to be used. So if the city says, okay, we have allocated this side for only agriculture purposes, you can't go and buy the land and build a house unless the city changes the ordinance and says now you can buy land and begin to build houses. And so the religious authorities have to change the city ordinance to say this land is no more for making pottery. It is no more for making broken vessels. But now it was a place for burying strangers. It becomes a graveyard, a cemetery. The strangers, those who were not Jews, who came to Jerusalem on their pilgrimage and had died in the city without any relatives in the city, would now have a place to be buried in this place called Jerusalem, the city of God. Jerusalem was the city of David. It was the city of God. It's the city of Christ. Oh, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. Keep listening. And so, no strangers, no strangers who died in Jerusalem could be buried there. They could not be buried there. And so, if they died without burial, guess what? They were eaten by wild animals. They were eaten by birds of the air. So, these strangers who came to Jerusalem and died in Jerusalem did not have a place to be buried until Christ purchased for them a burial place at the cost of his own blood. In this culture, and I'm sure even here you would appreciate that, that to be buried properly is a big thing. Even more in this culture. Having a decent burial is a good thing. And not to have a decent burial is such a shame. A huge shame. Because if you don't have a decent burial, especially when you don't have any relatives, even now, if someone, a stranger dies here and the government cannot identify the relatives, that person is not going to get the best burial. So this is already happening also in this time of Jesus. And there were a lot of people who were coming and getting sick and dying without any relatives. Nobody knows. They don't have IDs. They don't have anything. They don't have a cell phone. So no one can identify them. And so they die and they just 
get eaten by wild beasts. But something has happened. Because of the 30 pieces of silver, the dead foreigners can now have some decent place of burial, a place of rest. See that the 30 pieces of silver did not come from Judas. The 30 pieces of silver were not evaluation of Judas. They were evaluation of Christ. Zechariah 11. Let's go to Zechariah 11. We'll read just three verses. Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. So get to to Matthew. Go back. One more book and another book. It should be in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. This is a prophecy way before Jesus showed up. And he says, So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it into the porter, throw it to the porter, that magnificent prize at which I was valued by them. Who is talking? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who is talking by prophecy. Throw it to the porter. How much Jesus? The 30 pieces of silver. And he says, that magnificent prize at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the porter in the house of the Lord. Woo! (laughs) So the 30 pieces of silver is the valuation that was made of the blood of Christ. So the 30 pieces of silver are connected not to the blood of Judas, but to the blood of Christ. So the field of blood was not bought by the blood of Judas, but by the blood of Christ. Okay. And the blood of Christ was worth much more than 30 pieces of silver, but God is just preaching his son. In our day, he could have said $2 million or three trillion dollars, but even there's no figure that is equivalent in value to the blood of Christ. There's no amount of money that can redeem a person because redemption is too costly. Redemption is too costly. And since I'm talking about that, let me show you where where it is in the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 49 verses 8 or so. Let's go there. Verses 6 to 9. You find it? The psalmist says, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother. Those who have riches, it doesn't matter how much money they have, they cannot redeem a person. Nor give to God a ransom for him. Why? Why is it that there's no man who has enough money to redeem a soul? Verse 8, for the redemption of their souls is costly. The redemption of a soul is costly and because of that they should cease trying forever to redeem someone by their own works. Stop it. Quit it. It's too costly. You can't redeem yourself by your own works. It's too costly. 
verse 9, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. So what they are trying to do is to redeem themselves by their own resources, by their own money, and God says, forget it. You can't live eternally because of something that you did. It's too costly. The redemption price, if you look at the sticker price, there are these specialty shops that you go to that only millionaires can buy from. You go and you see the price tag. You see something that's like $500,000. You're like, uh oh, that's not for me. I'm out of here. I'm going to Costco. Okay, I'm going to Costco. This is not for me. And God is saying, the salvation of your soul is so costly. Don't even think about trying to redeem it. It's way above your resources. So the 30 pieces of silver were not saying that we were redeemed. The, the blood of Christ was worthy 30 pieces of silver. No, that is just a picture of what God is doing. Because in the New Testament, let's go to First Peter 1, 17 to 19. I'm showing extra things because I have time. So I can always expand it. <laughs> First Peter 1, 17 to 19. Apostle Peter says, do you find First Peter? If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver, O God, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now Peter says, no, your redemption actually happened at a huge cost, (laughs) not silver or gold. So you see that connection. But see what is happening here. Because we are looking for the gospel. We have already had a lot of gospel nuggets, but we still have not worked out the gospel from our story. The 30 pieces of silver bought a burial place for strangers. Who are these strangers? It is not the Jews or the people who were coming and dying in Jerusalem. The strangers who were buried in this place is you and I who did not have a resting place in the city of God. You are the strangers. This place that was for making fragile earthen vessels became the place of burying other fragile earthen vessels. And this place was purchased by the blood of Christ for burying fragile earthen vessels. You. Those who were broken because of sin and condemnation. But we found a burial place in the place that was purchased by the blood of Christ, valued at the price of the blood of Christ. So, not the blood of Judas, but the blood of Christ. That we may be buried with dignity and not be left to be devoured by the birds of the air. We were the strangers. We were the strangers. Without God or hope. We are the ones who did not know who God is. We did not have any covenant with God. We were just Gentiles overtaken by paganism and did not know the way of life and salvation. Until Christ came. And by his blood, 
He said, I am going to allocate, buy a place for my people who are called by my name that they also may find a resting place. And that is why in Hebrews, when you talk about salvation, it talks about entering into God's rest. So we have entered into God's rest by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's the book after Galatians, after 2 Corinthians. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Apostle Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So Apostle Paul is saying, in the time of Apostle Paul or the time of Jesus, there were only two groups of people. You were either a Jew or a Gentile. So the Jews, because they had the covenants, and the covenants required them to be circumcised, the whole world was divided into the circumcision or the uncircumcision. And we were the uncircumcision. We did not have God. Remember, remember, Apostle Paul says, remember, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, the covenants of salvation. Having no hope, you had no hope. And without God in the world, you were just like a chicken without a head. And we were the strangers. But listen to verse 13. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, we were far off as strangers. We were far removed as strangers. And even in the teaching of the tabernacle, I showed you, the tabernacle, the Gentiles who were among the Jews had their own court. The Gentiles were not allowed in. The Gentiles, you and I, if we had been alive during this time, we were not allowed. It's only Israel that could go in to meet with God. We could not. And this is what Apostle Paul is saying, that we were strangers. We could not approach God. We could not approach God, but in Christ, but now, verse 18, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near into the presence of God by the blood of Christ. So we were brought near to God, brought near by the blood of Christ that purchased a resting place for us. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall because the Jews and the Gentiles, they did not mix. There was a wall between them and the wall was to keep the Gentiles, you and I, out. But by the blood of Christ, that wall has been destroyed, removed. who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh 
the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. So the separation that we had with the Jews because the Jews were the people of God. The Jews are they who had all the covenants of salvation. We had nothing. I mean, this is business. We had nothing. We were just strangers without God and without hope. But praise be to God for Jesus Christ. He came by his blood. He removed that wall of separation and he grafted us in to the promises of God. And now we also have the same hope as those who believed in Christ. We have the hope of salvation. Verse 17, 18, we're still in Ephesians. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So you and I are the ones who were far away. We were the strangers and to the Jews who were near because they had the fathers, they had the covenants. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, because of the blood of Christ, we have access to God. We have access to the Father by the same spirit. Verse 19 to 21. So then, so then you are no longer strangers. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are no more illegal residents. You have your papers. You now have your citizen papers to go to heaven on account of Christ. The blood of Christ is what gave you the right to go to heaven. The blood of Christ is what signed your new birth certificate that says you are now the child of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So this is what the fruit of blood did. It made those who were strangers to not be strangers anymore. You are not strangers anymore. You now have a burial place as citizens of heaven, as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. You now are rested in Christ. You are now rested in Christ. You now have the proper documentation. Because you see, when you come to God, God is only looking for your visa. When you go to another nation, when you are visiting outside the country, you go, the only document that matters is your passport and the visa. They don't care what else they have. They want to see the visa. And when you have the visa, the consular officer or the immigration officer when you are entering into another country, they are not looking for what is in your past. Because of terrorism and stuff, I know they are getting be more intrusive and stuff. But before all that nonsense, they are only looking for one thing. And I remember when I first came to the States, they are not opening your bags. They don't care what you have. 
They only want to see the passport. And if the passport is already been stamped, they say, in less than 15 seconds, I'm already through. Welcome to the States and enjoy your stay. You don't have to be explaining a whole lot of things. And so, this is what Jesus has done. He has given us the legal papers. He has stamped the visa. It's a diplomatic visa. Red passport with the blood of Christ on it. And you come before God and God recognizes the visa as legitimate. And you are granted entrance based on the visa. So this is what Christ has done. This is what the field of blood is doing for us. Christ is the one by his own death and burial and resurrection. He accomplished our salvation. He accomplished our salvation. He, by his death, he established the new covenant in his blood. So it is the new covenant that gives a resting place. The old covenant does not give you a resting place. So don't go back to the law because the law is nothing for you who is a broken vessel. So when we commemorate the death of Christ, we commemorate his work in creating the legal framework that we may be accepted by God. Because salvation is a court issue. This is what a lot of people don't understand. Salvation is a court issue. This is a proceeding that only a judge deals with because you and I are already guilty. So we are guilty because we broke God's law and so if you have to have life, the judge has to come and look at the case and decide the case. And when the judge looks, he looks at what Christ accomplished and Christ goes as your representative. And if the judge is happy with what Christ did on your behalf, the judge can only declare you to be justified. And justification does not mean that you are good. It just means that the law has no more claim on you. The law is satisfied completely and perfectly. And the only person who is not satisfied is you. So when God looks at you, he looks at you through what Christ accomplished. And God is happy. He is satisfied. The law of God can't condemn you because it was given everything that it required by Jesus Christ. So I'll share some song here as I finish this by Keith Getty. Uh, Sister Carol and I were playing these wonderful hymns yesterday when you guys were all taking a nap. It's called Fragile Vessel. It says, this fragile vessel you have made, no hand on earth can fill for the waters of this world have failed, and I am thirsty still. We can be worthy of his love, wisdom, and mercy. Take this bread and wine as we share his cross and crown. Receive the grace sent down. I seek the treasures of your love. It's not that far to see. I had a melody above a gift from you to me. To save what's lost from heaven, he came, his presence still remain. 
open our eyes to his precious blood. Because it's not in vain. Jesus' work of salvation was not in vain. He will bring all those that the Father gave to him. And that is the hope of our gospel. And that is free grace. Free salvation. On account of Jesus Christ. I forgot to say something that is very important from our teaching. It's about the sufficiency of Christ in salvation. See that when the chief priests came to buy the land, the porter did not negotiate the price. He did not negotiate for a higher price. The payment of 30 pieces of silver that was offered was enough for the exchange and the exchange happened and the transfer of ownership happened. What is that saying is very important. It is saying the blood of Christ that was given, that was shed, was sufficient for our salvation, there could not be any higher price or a lower price that could be given for the exchange of your salvation. His death made complete payment for our sins. Jesus paid it all and you and I have nothing to add as the religious leaders did not have any more money beyond the 30 pieces of silver to add. The blood of Christ was enough. There's no more negotiation that we have to make with God because the blood of Christ was enough. There was some extra. That's for free too. Okay. Praise the Lord. Amen. Done.